Hi everyone, it's Linda Kelly here from the Better Maternity Care Campaign, jumping in ahead of this week's episode of Birthing a Nation to give you some breaking news. Yesterday, we received notification from the HSE that they were revising their guidelines on access to hospitals. That includes maternity hospitals. And so as of the 1st of November, hospitals, and this means every hospital in the country, can allow access for one nominated support partner from 8am to 9pm for all inpatients. And it's such a significant step forward after a very long, very difficult year. So this will have a knock-on impact as well for people's access during labour. Because typically when you're in early labour or you're going in for an induction, you'll be placed in an antenatal ward, which is a multi-bed ward. Your partner can now be with you from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. while you're on that ward in labour. And the language around labour has also really softened in the guidelines. And so there's a clear statement for hospitals that when it comes to the closing hour, the 9 p.m. mark, they should be taking into consideration if the person is going to be very distressed if their partner is asked to leave, if the delivery is imminent, if they're going to be moving to a single occupancy delivery room very shortly, the hospital is asked to give consideration to that and allow the nominated support partner to stay. So it's not as explicit as we would like, but it's definitely not as restrictive as it has been. Um, So I just want to take a moment to thank everybody for their involvement in this campaign, for supporting this podcast, for being the amplifier of all of the voices that people have shared with us it is making a difference and we are making a change Um, and I look forward to having more updates for you next week as we're due to meet the HSE on Wednesday you'll hear a bit more about that in the episode you're going to listen to now Birthing a Nation Pregnancy and the Pandemic A Go Loud Original the people on the ground are lovely, you know, they're lovely. And, and it's not like anything really has changed in what people are experiencing. You know, a loss is hard pre-pandemic or during the pandemic. And, they're, you know, the people on the ground and the nurses and the midwives and everybody are really, you know, they're, they're trained to look after you. But there's no one that can look after you better than your partner. You know, I'm hearing, I'm sitting in my recovery room on my own because there's, and you're just there with your thoughts because you've no one to talk to. And all you can hear is the sounds of of newborn babies or you can hear women you know laboring and you're just thinking jesus like this is it's torture like it's it's like it's like if someone was trying to torture you this is where where they'd send you you know um so everything was made i mean that that's all that's all bad anyway without a partner but it's just it's just made worse when when the partner isn't there um Hi there and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Suzanne Kane, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alison Curtis and Sue Murphy. Well, Sue possibly is in having a checkup, so we'll find out whether she's going to drop in and give us a little update. Alison, how are you? It's a podcast inspired by an Instagram post which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those affected by COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. And Amy De Bruin actually joined us in the last episode, uh, which was brilliant to hear her story firsthand after that being the catalyst of this podcast. Um, and which is why we've been doing this over the past three episodes. So, so far, we've heard the incredibly brave stories from Emma, Moira and James. And today we're going to be meeting Natalie. 
We've also had a lot of people get in touch at maternity at goloudnow.com. And some of the stories that they're sharing are just, they're so incredibly powerful. We're so thankful that they're sharing them with us. And other times people have got in touch just to share how much the stories and our guests have meant to them. And that's the bigger conversation that we're trying to have here. Absolutely, Suzanne. And here's actually a really good example from a lady called Neve who got in touch last week. I've just listened to your third episode for the third time and I've cried the whole way through. Thank you all for the awareness you are bringing to the issue. Each episode has resonated with me and my experience in July 2020. At the time I just got on with it, everyone had to. And afterwards I needed to not feel sad and I just had to move on. But now my partner and I have started discussing adding to our family and I couldn't understand why the panic was rising in my body each time I thought about returning to the hospital again. Even though I really want another baby, the fear of being stuck in the hospital again without him is so overwhelming. And I'm looking forward to all the positive things to come. And actually, Suzanne, this email really resonated with me in the sense that two reasons. One is that she's obviously not recognizing the, you know, trauma around the first one, which is understandable. But remember, at the very beginning of the podcast, you know, you had a moment, a wobble, which you should not have been anyway, embarrassed about. But I kind of dismissed it from my point of view, as in yours is so fresh, like Sadie, so little. But I will say here now, and I'm sure that we've said this in all of our podcasts to give women warnings that it's trigger warning. It has brought back a lot of trauma from 10 years ago for me. And I am really looking at that trauma and going why this podcast, you know, and this is about women that are currently in a situation and not having access to partners having access. But it's it's a much broader issue about trauma and birth. And it's amazing. I really dismissed it for myself, kind of going, ah, sure, she's 10. I'm well over it now. But apparently not. But this is why we look at that broader hashtag that we say of better maternity care. And I know we're looking at the pandemic and and like, you know, Neve, thank you so much, by the way, for sharing that story with us and for, for saying it out loud, because we're looking at, you know, maybe just a kind of a little look into what's happened over the past 20 months and how that's affecting women. And again, that so many women have gone, as we have done prior to the pandemic of going head down, let's just get on with it, because it's almost just a given. But giving birth, even if you have, inverted commas, a normal birth, is still one of the most traumatic experiences of your life. Nothing prepares you for those little pieces that happen when you give birth, you know, whether it be a section or a vaginal birth or the tears, the rips, all of that stuff. So that in itself is really traumatic, but we are told, sure, isn't it perfectly natural to get on with it? You know, and then on top of it now, we have a pandemic and women, you know, postnatal depression or not postnatal depression struggle with extending their family, adding to their family based on just their births without a pandemic and those restrictions. Absolutely. And the guilt. And you can hear it. You can hear it in her email that, she, you know, this is something that she really wants to do, but she's not sure that she can face it again. And I absolutely would encourage uh, anyone in that position to get help and discuss it with somebody and get skills in place that can help you with the trauma and can help you with going forward. Definitely. When you're checking out of hospital now, I know from my experience in the coom, they do say to you, uh, there's a, there's a care, you know, a bit of help there if you want to talk about your birth. Um, and I, I would presume that maybe is across the hospitals, but there's loads of places out there that you can. And even if it just means talking to your, one of your friends, so Sue isn't with us today. She's t- she's like imminently due a baby. Like imminent. <laughs> she is. Less than a week. <laughs> what are we like? We're like the mothers all around her. We're just like sending all this positive vibes. It's like we're almost in the room with her. Um, so 
I'll tell you about uh, our guest today. So our guest today is someone that Sue spoke to a few weeks ago uh, before Sue had finished up for her maternity leave. Her name is Natalie Burton and she is someone who's active in the Better Maternity Care movement. And this is Natalie's story. So I'm Natalie Britton. I am a producer and an actor. I have one son. His name is Oakley and he's three and a half. And I have been involved in the Better Maternity campaign over the past few months. Um, I got involved in it really initially just by sending a tweet uh, asking Stephen Donnelly a pretty simple question about the the maternity restrictions and the next thing I knew a lot of people were engaging with it and there seemed to be uh, a lot of um, other other women and and other couples in my situation looking for the same answers and this was I suppose I was about 30 weeks pregnant at that time and and it just sort of went from there. And I, I think with my producing hat on, I, I, I wanted to do something. And I made a little video that that went sort of viral in the sense that it can go viral in Ireland about the, the partners in who were uh, locked out in their cars waiting outside hospitals. And and then I've just I've really I've just been very passionate about this, as as I think a lot of people have. So I went on um to to give birth six weeks ago and uh and I have I have a little baby girl now who's who's six weeks today. But I suppose uh my experience my experience of birth during the pandemic started last summer in twenty twenty, back in uh back in August. I was ten weeks pregnant. Um, with my then fifth pregnancy. So I had had three previous losses. And uh, at that time, my son was two and a half. Um, and due to my history, I had already had two scans by that 10 week point and everything, everything looked great. Uh, you know, there was a perfect little heartbeat. And I think we were just quietly hopeful that, that this that that pregnancy would be okay like if only for the odds like surely we we couldn't lose a, a fourth at that point um so anyway i i went in um to the Marion fetal um clinic that's just beside hollow street there and um of course i was in on my own because there were no partners allowed and i remember i remember being called into the room and i remember shaking and i remember apologizing um, to the ultrasound um, technician, I remember saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's just um, I've been here before so many times and it hasn't ended well. And, you know, and she was like, well, have you had scans already? I said, yeah, I've had two and everything was good. She says, OK, you, you know, you'd be grand, you'd be grand. I said, yeah, yeah, I just I just, um, you know, uh, sorry, sorry. I just I just remember apologizing and and looking at the, the chair because they have <laughs> I think sometimes, I, you know, at all these appointments, they'd have that chair that was there beside the tape beside the the bed where the partner should be sitting and nearly you'd say would you not remove that empty chair because it's so triggering but I remember looking at that empty chair and just wanting my husband there and um and anyway then up up came the uh the screen and look unfortunately I I was a bit of an expert at that point where I knew what to look for um from follicles to to heartbeats and I saw that there was no movement and um and I knew and I thought oh my god this cannot be happening again 
And instantly I just, I just needed my partner there and he wasn't there. And, um, and she, you know, she said, well, you know, I, I could see her face and I could see her, you know, going around with it and saying, okay, you know, I, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe do a vaginal, we'll do a vaginal scan just to check. And, but I, at that point I had, I had checked out, like I knew what was happening and, um, you know, then she, you know, she sort of said, you know, I'm so sorry, love the baby. I'm sorry. There's no heartbeat. And so, uh, at that point, I knew that my husband was out in the park. It was a really nice summer's day, I remember. And he was out in the park with my son because it was lunchtime and he'd picked him up from school. And I thought, oh, God, he doesn't know. In this moment right now, the baby is gone and he thinks his baby is still alive. And I have to tell him. And how am I going? How am I how am I going to do that? And I and I I thought I can't I can't pick up the phone. I can't do it. And I just sent a text. I know it sounds crazy, but I just couldn't. I was so emotional. And I just sent a message saying the baby is gone. And then he wrote back, no, 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 no. And then I just, I remember just crying. And at that point, um, at that point, the the woman turned to me and said, look, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to get, um, we're going to have to get the paperwork and, you know, get you set up with an appointment for next steps. And uh, I just remember thinking, God, you know, I've come in to see my baby and now in an instant, in a second, I'm now planning its removal, you know. And um, and so she said, you know, go next door. I'll make a phone call. Go next door. Take this piece of paper down to Hollis Street. And so, you know, in I, I sort of in a daze walked out and round the corner and into a bustling maternity hospital and around every corner there were just pregnant women everywhere and I went into the ultrasound wing and I that was where they sent me I remember and I had to sit in the a room and wait for a doctor to come in and again just on my own just all on my own and um having been through losses before as well it's that thing where like I know what it's like it's it's hard enough going through something like that even having your partner with you but this was sort of like next level because it's it's such an awful feeling your world gets so small but it's the two of you that are there experiencing this at the same time. But suddenly I was I was going through it all on my own and and I um I was wait I waited a long time for someone to come in and um and then they told me the long and short of it was, you know, they give you the choice of how you want to move forward. Do you want to wait and see if it'll pass naturally? Do you want to take some medication or do you want to book a DNC? And as I said, this was now my fourth loss. I had had one natural and then the others were DNCs. And so I said, no, I, I just, I just want the DNC. I mean, let's, yeah, whatever needs to happen. And the next appointment wasn't for a week. So I had to go home and wait. Um, and, you know, it's an, it's an awful feeling when you're sitting there waiting and the, but the baby is still still inside you and it's just you know that that week was a long long week and of course my son he was he was nearly three at the time and so he was so he was aware we had told him um you know I was 10 weeks I had been 14 on my previous loss um but he was younger he wasn't aware but this one he had and um I think one of the hardest things was just how do you tell a child who doesn't understand something like that you know he had sort of got into a ritual of kissing my belly and talking to my belly and ask, you know, 
And so I just I had to tell him that I can't do that anymore and that the baby was gone. It was it was really, really hard. Um and um and then the the week the next week came and into Hollis Street I went and um and uh they um you know I, I you know it's it's hard because the thing is that like the people on the ground are lovely you know they're lovely and and it's not like anything really has changed in what people are experiencing you know a loss is hard pre-pandemic or during the pandemic and they're you know the people on the ground and the nurses and the midwives and everybody are really you know they're they're trained to look after you but there's no one that can look after you better than your partner and so I we had naively thought that maybe he might be able to come and sit with me like in in the room um you know this was back in August but of course we got up to the front door and and the security said no sorry and so he went um I think he actually just walked home he walked home from town that day and um and I sort of kept in touch with him throughout the day and um and so then it started you know sort of like people coming in and you know asking history and I had I had a huge long history of you know between my losses and between surgeries that I'd gone through and and so I had to keep I remember having to keep repeating that to the you know all the different people that come in from the anesthesiologist to the doctor to the nurse to the midwife to the I mean there are just so many people and I and I thought gosh this is really hard having to repeat myself and if he was here he'd be able to just say yeah she had this on this this on this this on this but um you know it's a lot of mental mental and emotional anguish and 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 it's very taxing all of that work that you have to do uh, apart from what you're going through physically so and I remember being marked sort of they collected a couple of us who were who were in for DNCs that day and we walked down they walked us down to the the room together and you know I was sort of looking looking at these women going you know you're not alone I'm here I know your partner isn't here and there was just this sort of like unspoken emotion between us and empathy I guess between us because we were all obviously going through the same thing so I had the DNC and then you're, you know, you're brought into recovery. And the first thing when you come around, of course, is you're looking for your partner and, oh, oh yeah, there's no one there. And, um, and you're in the maternity ward. I mean, it's one of those things, right? It's like, gosh, you know, should, should we not really be at a place where we're talking about maybe, you know, having, having pregnancy loss situations maybe handled in a different area of the hospital I remember thinking god I never thought about that before you know but I'm being I'm being wheelchaired or being I'm walking down a corridor and I'm passing these bumps and I'm you know I'm hearing I'm sitting in my recovery room on my own because there's and you're just there with your thoughts because you've no one to talk to and all you can hear is the sounds of of newborn babies or you can hear women you know, laboring and you're just thinking, Jesus, like this is, it's torture. Like it's, it's like, it's like if someone was trying to torture you, this is where where they'd send you, you know? Um, so everything was made, I mean, that, that's all, that's all bad anyway without a partner, but it's just, it's just made worse when, when the partner isn't there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, I had to look (laughs) on my previous losses. I'd, I'd gone through some tough stuff. Like I remember on our first, myself my husband sitting in the room and the doctor telling us jokingly you know he said uh he said ah sure you're young you know and next time next time get him to give you the good stuff and I remember looking at my husband and the two of us just going what but you know 
it was an awful moment, but we shared it together, you know. Um, and I remember also, you know, being told the news and hearing the ultrasounds coming, the beats coming through the wall of the babies. But again, he was sitting beside me and he was holding my hand, you know. And I remember at another loss being told, because I was in bits, I remember in bits at this one in particular, and I and I was crying so much. And they had done this, um, this am, I can't remember what it's called, like amnesia, it's it's some CVS test or whatever where they where they test anyway the the um the baby and they put this needle through and everything and I was just in bits and I remember them saying to me if you wouldn't mind just um if we could have you just just go out out exit exit through the back door because you know we don't want you walking through reception and you know and all this but he held my hand throughout all of these moments before and um this this was just something that not only I was going through on my own, but forevermore, it'll be an experience that I'll have had on my own and that he won't have had. And and we can talk about it and I can tell it to him like I could tell any friend or family member what I went through. But essentially, I'm carrying the baby, but it's his baby, too. And um, and he was he was cut off from it all. And I think the. The frustration comes from the fact that it doesn't seem justified. And I think that that's why there's so much anger and confusion still as to why still these partners are being locked out of this experience. Um, so, so fast forward anyway, and we decided, I decided after that last that um, we were going to try one more time um, with IVF and uh, because I just couldn't go through, we were having, what the doctors kept calling bad luck with the embryos. Um, obviously I'd gone through tons and tons of testing and all. So we, um, we went for IVF and we, we decided to go over to Prague to do it because of costs. And we found an amazing clinic called Genet, G-E-N-N-E-T. Um, and we went over there and we were extremely lucky in that it worked out for us the first time around. Um, and, uh, we had to do the PGS testing on the embryos and I had gone back and did the transfer on my own and everything, but it was very smooth. And fast forward through the pregnancy, it was a pregnancy like many other women are experiencing at the moment, which was that my husband was only allowed in for the 20 week scan. And, uh, and what I had done um, and what I had decided sort of at the beginning was that I would video the scans <laughs> and I, in the moment, you know, I tried to detach myself. The doctor was talking and the screen, but I nearly, I felt bad uh, experiencing that. I didn't want to experience it without my partner. So I videoed it and I sort of zoned out while I was there. And then I'd come home and we'd watch the video together. So, and I was lucky enough to be able to do that because I think some, some places, some hospitals didn't allow you to video it in any way. But um, I just did from the beginning. I said, I'm videoing it. And I took my phone out. And then that just became our little tradition. So every time I'd go in for a scan, I'd come home and we'd watch the video together. Um, And and I ended up, because I was high risk and because of my history, I had a lot of scans. So I was in there a lot on my own. Um, So then we got to the we got to the day of the birth and I had a scheduled C-section again because of my history and my husband dropped me off at the front door and in I went carrying my maternity bag on my back and wheeling the baby's bag, all the things they tell you not to do when you're, that you know, 40 weeks pregnant. So don't be lifting, don't be carrying. Oh, but sure, 
it's grand when it comes to this, put yourself in danger. So anyway, in I went and um, and I remember going to check in at the admissions and there was a woman sitting there and she was crying. And here I was checking in for my C-section and I knew and I said, God, she's me a year ago. And she has to now listen to me um, and look at me. And I just remember being so aware that day of my pregnancy, um, of passing the women who who looked, um, who were crying, who were distraught, who who clearly were there for for loss and not for birth, and it was just, and again on their own, um, all of them, um, and uh, and so, um, you know, I was back in the same ward as I was the year before, and it was, uh, you know. I think when my husband was allowed in at that point, so, you know, I, I think probably he had to wait about three, maybe three and a half hours. So it wasn't, I suppose, too bad in the sense of things like I got there at eight o'clock in the morning and then um, or seven o'clock. And then at um, at around nine forty five or so, he was allowed in or text your husband. You're on your way. You know, you know, you'll be <laughs> you've got five minutes type thing. OK, quickly, quickly, come, come. So, you know, up he came. And of course, we, you know, we were walked through the corridors and I remember at the time saying to him pointing out oh that's where I was last year and that's where I sat and oh that's the room number four that's the room and I was nearly in a way cathartically working through the the loss because I was in a way able to share it with them but also it was a bit strange you know it all brought it was very triggering it brought up a lot and um, of course I think they only have I mean, I suppose I can be corrected on this, but I think they only have two surgical rooms there for delivery. And I'm pretty confident I was back in the same room delivering this time as I was, um, uh, unless the rooms are identical, but, or, you know, but, um, so that was, that was sort of hard. Um, and then, uh, and then I had the baby and, you know, we, we had been, Hollis Street had, I think, maybe four or five days prior to this uh, announced that they were lifting the the limits on the on the restrictions. And so, you know, I had cried, cried that night when they announced that thinking, my God, you know, it's going to it's in time for ours. Um, And so I knew that he was going to be allowed to stay. However, you know, they don't you know, with that, that's they don't want him in all the rooms at all the times, and so we we were separated a little bit, um, throughout it. But the anxiety of of leading up to the birth of not knowing, <laughs> and I think a lot of women are are, are sort of going, oh, am I going to be met with compassion or someone who's going to to maybe do me a favor, or am I going to have to fight, or am I not going to have my husband there, or my my husband or my partner there at all? Um, and it's that it's that worry, you know, you know, when you should be worrying about other things of, of not knowing what, what was ahead. So we did at least we knew that he would be allowed um, to be with me. And he was. And uh, and I was moved, you know, the birth. It was OK. It was a C-section. I, you know, I had a bit of excessive bleeding. I had a bit of, you know, things that you know weren't ideal, but sure, we got through it. And um, and then I got to the room. And it was like TikTok sort of counting down the time till, you know, he had to leave. There's something about, you know, you know, your choice being taken away from you, like 
you know, when you're told, oh, he can only be here for this amount of time, as opposed to maybe he might want to leave anyway. Maybe he might want to go and spend time with my son or he has things to do. But being told he can't be in before this time and he has to leave at this time, which I think, um, again, it's it's just removing that that choice from you. Um, and and I, you know, the, the biggest part, I think, of all of this when it comes to the the effect it's had, it's just you know, you feel like you lose your voice. And I, I would be a very vocally confident person and I'd always, you know, speak up and stand up for myself. But there's something in that vulnerable situation where you're in these moments and you just, you're nearly in shock. Sometimes you can't believe, um, you can't believe that something is being said to you a certain way or, or being told to you. And you just, you lose, you do. I mean, I remember just losing my voice and, 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 and there's a lot of the anger of of this being going on for so long it's been it's been nearly like i think tw- it has been 20 months now and you know when covid hit every all the systems every place and and establishment and everything in the country sort of had to go oh gosh how are we going to deal with this and a lot of places shut down and you know and they had to they had to place you know put in place mechanisms and and stuff but then over over the time you know that was adapted and adjusted and and everything but for some reason maternity care just wasn't you know their initial reaction was right the first thing we'll do is ban partners and then it's just stayed there you know and and there's been no movement now there's been a bit right there's been a bit on a few hospitals but the hse guidelines and even this week i think um uh it came out that they're just they're just won't they just won't update them you know and it's like god 90% of the population is vaccinated you know everything's open and up and running but you guys whoever you are between the government and the hospitals and all that you've decided you decided 20 months ago that the partners weren't allowed in and we're still here and there's no risk assessments being published and you know there so there's a, just a lot of like you know shaking fists at the sky and going why and then when you ask why the people in power most of them are coming back sort of saying yeah we don't know why either you know a lot of the ones that go we don't know why either and and it just feels very much like the response to this was never patient centered it wasn't women centered you know it was never oh gosh covid how is that going to affect these women who are who are birthing, birthing our nation, you know, how how is it going to affect them? How can we best take care of the women? You know, maybe let's put, you know, oh, this doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. Okay. This, this is having an effect on these women. Like, how could we do this? Could we outsource some of the ultrasounds? Could we maybe have some of the, could we get some public health nurses to step in? Could we maybe do some home visits with some Dopplers? Could we do, could we do something like there was no forward thinking. It just kept, it just kept being very reactionary and it still is despite seeing the consequences, like despite seeing the mental health consequences and despite seeing all of these women who are, again, we're being forced as women always are to open up and be vulnerable and scream and tell our stories. And, you know, will someone please listen to us, you know, and, and in the meantime, you know, these decisions, they're just, they're not being made with, with women in mind. And, we just are continuing to suffer for it. And the consequences of being separated and being alone aren't thought of. It's, it's only the consequences of the potential COVID risk, which right now we know, like, 
is minimal and where there are so many systems in place. Um, and I constantly say pregnant couples are some of the most careful out there when it comes to COVID for, for the obvious reasons. So look, you know, anxiety, there's such anxiety about birth anyway, you know, and then you, you sort of, you add in the, the birthing alone part and it just, it just takes it to a whole other level, um, you know, and, and I, I think now when I go back, I'm having, you know, I have some flashbacks back to the time in the hospital and I think, my God, you know, when he, you know, when he did have to leave and I was on my own for that long stretch um, of the evening and the night and the into the morning when he wasn't there. And, you know, the wards are full and the, I think the, we all know that um, the midwives are, um, are stretched thin and staff are stretched thin and, you know, it's this thing where you have to press this buzzer if you need help. And I had had a C-section and gosh, you know, you press the buzzer and you could be waiting um, a long time and your baby's screaming. And I, I remember, uh, I remember like having to lift the baby out of the, of the, um, the cot, basically like a sling, like, you know, <laughs> lifting, lifting it up. The, and I have flashbacks thinking, God, how dangerous that was, you know, how dangerous was that? And the baby being asleep on my chest and me falling asleep with the baby on my chest because there was no one to place the baby back. And if my husband was there, it's all these things that you sort of, you know, just place you in so much danger because the partner isn't there from the carrying of the bags to the just lifting of the baby to getting it in and out of the bed to the shower. You know, when you can't, you don't have a a personalized midwife who's there, of course, who can, who, you know, you have to call them and they're dealing with, 16 other people and and everyone has needs it's all you know it, you know it's all just these women who are very vulnerable and who have just had newborn babies and no one is more important than than the next We'd like to thank Natalie so much for sharing her story. She's incredibly brave to do so. And I know her story will resonate with so many hundreds and thousands of people across the country. And she was incredible to be, you know, even consider taking part in this podcast because it's so recent and it's so traumatic. And as always, uh, Linda Kelly joins us. And Linda, you, um, you know, Natalie? Yeah, I've gotten to know Natalie through the Better Maternity Care campaign. And I agree, I think, you know, her resilience in being able to speak about the losses that she experienced through the pandemic, and then to go on and give birth. And, you know, it's something that many women across the country are experiencing. And there's so many hidden layers to the restrictions for these women, because for a lot of people, particularly you know, we're at the stage now where this has been going on for so long that if people experienced a loss in early 2020, summer 2020, autumn 2020, every single thing was on their own. And in certain hospitals that even went to um certain general anaesthetics being withheld for DNC procedures and things like that. And 
they're now at a stage maybe where they're considering having another baby or trying again and the memory and the experience and the trauma of what they went through is really really coming to the fore every time they they are facing going back into the hospital now and particularly if they're in a hospital some hospitals have moved faster than others but if they're in a hospital that is still quite strict or still quite stringent the fear and the anxiety that they have going into it and i think that's something that has been totally underestimated by HSE managers and by the minister responsible is the impact of the trauma on this and how it impacts on all of your subsequent pregnancies and all of your subsequent appointments. So somebody might think, oh, it's just a general antenatal appointment. There's nothing to worry about. You don't need somebody with you for that. But you don't know the history of the person coming across the door. And maybe for that person, a regular antenatal appointment was exactly what they came to the last time and they left with devastating news. And I think like my heart really is with all of the people who've experienced loss through these restrictions because it it is not something anybody like you don't get the chance to do that over you know you don't get the chance to fix that people are left like both women and their partners are left with living with that experience for the rest of their lives and trying to navigate that grief and the circumstances around it and that hasn't been given the attention that it really rightly deserves by decision makers it seems like from listening to the story like there's I mean there's just so many levels to, to be honest like for anybody to listen to it but to me I mean the word losses that they're you know the fact that we're talking you know we're talking about losses here and that they're just the, the lack of common sense really kind of enrages me an awful lot that I, I find it very difficult to be like can nobody just have, you know, like, I mean, empathy is one thing, but just even common sense. And then just kind of the use of things like bad luck. Um, like, I know we talked a little bit uh, there about, Lindy, you had said about women who had gone in for ERPCs and DNCs and that they couldn't have anesthetics. And uh, I had a message from a woman who experienced that in early lockdown, right at the very, very beginning. So April into May. Um, and she had to go into a Dublin hospital and they just said, basically, this is what we have to do. Subsequently, she's had two losses since, but she feels is what what she was telling me in, in her email was is almost that her body is so just shook and traumatized that she was like, I actually don't think I am physically able to hold a, car- a carry a pregnancy. She was like, I've just gone into my own head about it now and I'm just constantly waiting for that bad news. And she was like lying on a table when you are in your full senses and that, you know, you know, you're kind of being told you're part of this great, you're good. Like she had said, she said it felt almost that she was in medieval times. Like it was this kind of almost like torture. Like there was, you know, like, and she's not the only woman. Like these, these stories are more and more coming to the surface that women are able to say it out loud. And like everything that women have experienced in this country over the hundreds of years is that we won't see 80%. We won't hear 80% of those voices. 
because they just can't say them out loud. And, you know, it's amazing when, when we hear stories like this and they're shared, they are devastating to hear, but to have the strength and to share those stories that Natalie did. And, and Natalie's story as well, uh, the way she, she's so articulate in the way she was speaking, but something that she's brought up that is an extension again on better maternity care is when someone is going into the hospital and they do receive the devastating news that she does, like, you know, you want the support there for them to have their own space and their own grieving space and their care separate to those that are in for other appointments. And it's not, it's just, it's a lot to ask of anybody. And then, you know, the women, and Natalie said this herself, as you put this onus on yourself to hold your head up high and everything's fine because you don't want to upset pregnant ladies going in for other appointments. And just the fact that that hasn't been ever kind of considered, well, on the mass, mass majority of hospitals, that that care needs to be separate. When that news is delivered, there needs to be separate way of looking after these women I had said that actually when I went out with my ERPC um in December 2019 was that I woke up and there was a baby beside me just after a section and the midwife was having a conversation that she was having cravings and so do you know what my reaction to that was I was coming out of my anesthetic and I told her to eat ginger biscuits because it would help her nausea that was my reaction I, I was like, oh, she's, I was like, she's like, you know, I was like, she's, she's really suffering. She was telling the other nurse how terrible the vomiting was. And I had had really bad nausea. That's what I'd been experiencing up until that we went in for the scan and there was no heartbeat. So I was like, eat, you know, eat ginger biscuits. Still. That was, that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. And to me, it, it's, a, I think, is it a female thing? Um, what do you like? Is it that we try, we try and support those around us and, and not make it, you know? Yeah, like, you're in oh. shock as well. You're absolutely in shock as well. But that really struck me in Natalie's story. And the other thing is that, you know, she said one sentence that was so clear and sums it all up is that despite, you know, and again, we, we appreciate the healthcare professionals, everyone, you know, is under stress and they're dealing with people in the worst times of their lives. And, you know, but she did say that no matter how kind somebody is around you, the only one that can bring you that level of comfort is your partner. And that really resonated. I think one of the things that, you know, has really struck me from a campaign perspective is like, why now? You know, why now are people really kind of getting very agitated around demanding better maternity care? Because a lot of this, okay, is to do with COVID restrictions, but it's also underpinned by the fact that we've had decades of underfunding into maternity hospitals and a complete devaluing of women's experience of the health service in that particular health service. And I think it's always been a combination of if you go in and you have what people consider to be a typical birth, you just kind of think, oh, I was lucky enough to have a good outcome. And you go away and you move on and you get busy raising your kids and and going about your life and if you go in and you have a traumatic experience it's often so difficult to even talk about it that the idea of being involved in a campaign to improve things just is something totally alien to where you are in your mind and I think one of the really interesting things for us has been seeing people come together into the better maternity care space regardless of what their experience was so there are people who have experienced really difficult loss really really intense trauma who feel safe and secure in the campaign that they can kind of come in and out as they need to be and they can kind of help progress things you know by speaking to their story or by advocating for change or lobbying their local politician and then people who maybe before would have kind of gotten on with things and moved on have actually kind of taken a step back and realized do you know what I had a good outcome or I what I what I hear a lot from people is people saying like I was lucky 
but I shouldn't have to feel lucky because this is my health care. And, you know, a good standard of consistent care, regardless of your hospital, should be what we expect, not what we feel lucky to receive. And I think that's why we'll really see even when the COVID restrictions, you know, do lift in their entirety at whatever point in time that is, um, I think we'll still end up, you know, bringing this campaign forward to look at issues like demarcating care pathways when people are experiencing a loss. So they're not going through those busy waiting rooms full of people with bumps, which is, you know, very distressing in and of its own right for people and all of the other aspects. So I think I think it's a real, uh, you know, and again, like I'm not sure really that like the lads in charge and it is predominantly men. I'm not sure they really understand the momentum that is there to really address the deficits in maternity care as a result of these very myopic decisions that they've made at a management level. I think things would be very different if this was the other way around. I feel Hmm. if the men of the world were lying on a bed with their legs spread, trying to push, you know, a seven, seven, eight, one, seven, six baby out through, you know, a very small area and the stress that comes with that and the worry that comes with carrying from the minute that you get that, you know, that positive pregnancy test, you begin to worry because nothing is a certain. And if they went through that, truly went through that and felt those changes to their body and the hormone drop, irrelevant of a pandemic things will be very different because I feel in my opinion there's an element of that they have been told all their lives sure aren't you a woman isn't it what you're you know isn't your body built to do it but you know what it's way more than that and it is and when you see sorry when you see other countries and how they have their maternity care set up on a you know a federal level like we it is achievable and I agree 100% with Linda that I think that this is going to extend far beyond when restrictions are lifted um, Linda, um, a little update from you in terms of uh, obviously how things have gone in the week since we've spoken. Is there bring me good news, Linda? Bring me momentum. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with the good news, Suzanne. Okay, so, fantastic. Um, Thank you. Very significant good news, or at least it feels so for me in particular. But Cork University Maternity Hospital announced yesterday that they were reverting to pre-pandemic access on their visiting hours, which means that from today, partners have unrestricted access from 7 a.m. in the morning until 11 p.m. at night. And the amount of messages I got from people last night, uh, you know, obviously most people know I'm based in Cork, so there's a huge Cork contingent um, of support, and it's the only maternity hospital you can go to. The amount of messages I got from people last night basically say, I'm crying here, watching your Instagram stories and that will have a knock-on impact for people going in for inductions and for people in early labour during the day because now the only time where your partner will be asked to leave is at that night time during those nighttime hours so a significant anxiety uh, lifted for people but what it does is it throws into sharp focus then the rest of the hospitals who have not progressed on issues um so Wexford, Mullingar, Limerick um, in particular are some that come to mind. And despite assurances from the minister's office that I would get a call back at the end of last week, nada, zilch, 
silence. And so, um, you know, uh, my phone remains on, you know, for the minister's office to contact for him to meet with us. Um, I think one of the things that really uh, put my teeth on edge during the week was I'm sure people have seen the story of an incredible woman, Breach O'Connor, who gave birth in the coombe last week and who spent most of the labour in the car park because her options were either to go to the antenatal ward and not have her partner with her or to stay in the car park. And she opted to stay in the car park, even though it would mean she wouldn't have any pain relief. And she wrote she wrote out like from from home after being discharged with a small newborn, a really powerful column. And the response from the minister was, oh, well, you know, 17 out of 19 hospitals are compliant. The coom was compliant when they did that. The coom was compliant when they offered those choices. And so it's really important now. You know, we know that there's going to be an opening of the country on Friday. It might not be to the same extent. Or, you know, I saw the minister was interviewed today to say he really would support antigen testing um, for different things, like, but not for maternity. Like, what is going on? Um, and so I would really, if the minister's office is listening to this and monitoring the media on the Better Maternity Care campaign, I would encourage them to get back in touch. But regardless, we are meeting the HSC next Wednesday and going through, um, you know, a number of outstanding issues for them. I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic for the meeting um, but I am hopeful you know things have always moved after a meeting um, and uh, then I hope that we will have some more positive positive movement. Um, if you do want to get in touch with us of course we do welcome your stories it is maternity at goloudnow.com and we do thank everybody so far who shared their incredible stories it's almost uh, time for us to go this week but before we go we would like to thank the amazing frontline healthcare workers who've worked so hard throughout this time and we absolutely have not forgotten that absolutely Alison and that's why we'll be talking to some of them across this series about their experiences and what pressures they face supporting women at the most vulnerable circumstances and at the most challenging of times ultimately the only people who should be held to account here are the government as always we asked today's guest what they'd say to our Taoiseach and health minister if they could we leave you with Natalie's thoughts on that Why the hell are they all on different pages? Like, none of them seem to know. They're like, oh, is that the new rule? Oh, is that? Oh, really? Oh, did that? I remember remember when I was in with my husband and and the, they were like, oh, is that? When was that announced? If you did, oh, I didn't hear that. And you're just like, yeah, of course, you're, you're working 24-7. And, you know, <laughs> I suppose. But there's no, <laughs> you just you sort of realized, oh, the staff aren't being briefed on this. They, they aren't. Be, there's no communication. I'm on the other side of it now and I've worked through a lot. I've talked through a lot of my experience, but it still maddens me. I see all these women who are currently pregnant and who are going into this and who I thought, God, by my time, it'll never, the restrictions won't be still in place. And here they are and they still are in place and there just doesn't seem to be any movement on them. And it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating and it's another unfortunate saga that that women are are going through and i think we all are sitting here going yeah this will be down the line something will get some half-hearted emotion you know a half-hearted apology for 
from some future government. Oh, that wasn't handled so well. And yet, you know, they could be doing something about it now and they're not. And it's not it's only one of the most important things someone can do, you know, bringing life into the world. And it really just continues to feel as if no one in power cares. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bower Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisation's we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.